again um, from Exodus chapter 20. If you're visiting with us, um, may not be familiar with the Bible, we've printed that for you on page 10 of your worship guide. Um, We are going to read, as typical, uh, the first uh, few verses, first two verses that serve as an intro to the Ten Commandments, and then we're going to read the Second Commandment, starting with verse 4. Then we will respond responsively as printed in your worship guide. This is God's Word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then verse 4, this is the Second Commandment. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Open my eyes. You may be seated. Let me pray and ask God's blessing on his word preached. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that by the power of your spirit, you may make your word come alive in our hearts we might hear the voice of Jesus teaching us with all power and authority that has been given to him on heaven and on earth. Convict us of sin, but don't leave us there. Draw us to the foot of the cross. Show us your greatness and your glory. So transform us by your life-giving word that we might be animated, set apart for Love for you and love for neighbors. Teach us wonderful things from your law, we pray. Amen. Well, uh, again, if you're visiting with us, we have been working our way through the book of Exodus. And we're here in the Ten Commandments studying today the Second Commandment. And last week, as we looked at the First Commandment, this is what we had said. The, The way God has made us is that worship is the center of our lives and... We become what we worship. What we worship sets a trajectory either for ruin or for restoration. And this is the most basic definition of what a human being is created in the image of God. We have incredible dignity, but also incredible capacity for being driven either to ruin or restoration by what we worship. And we all have put, we've defined that as something that we put our hope, trust, and love in. We've all put our hope, trust, and love into something with the hope that it would drive us to a life of freedom and flourishing. It could be your career, it could be how you raise your children, it could be ministry, sex, money, sports. I mean, the list literally is endless. And we've all had these things that we've entrusted our hope, trust, and love to with the expectation that they would give us a life of flourishing and freedom. So, we either are moving towards restoration or ruin. And so we come to the second commandment, 
And if you're listening, you probably were thinking, and if you've studied the Ten Commandments, you're probably thinking at some point, you know, okay, like, how does this relate to me? I don't have a shelf full of uh, little graven images of the gods that I worship, unless, of course, you're a college football fan. And then you have shelves, like me, I have shelves full of things that I worship that have led to my ruin and no restoration. They never deliver on their promises. Or you might be thinking, how is this not just saying the same thing as the first commandment? The first commandment says you have shown over to gods before me. And at the second commandment, don't make any images of gods. So here's the difference between the two. The first commandment tells us to have the one true God who has revealed himself in his word And in the person and work of Jesus, to have the one true God as your only God, he will lead to restoration. Not to have other gods that lead to ruin. The second commandment tells us to worship the true God truly. The first commandment is about the object of our worship being the God who has redeemed his people. The second commandment dictates to us that we worship the true God in the true Way, This command prohibits specifically making physical representations of the invisible God. But there's a lot more going on here than just making physical representations of the invisible God. The commandments function, I want you to keep this, functions like a web link, like a hyperlink. When you click on it, it takes you into something much deeper. I'm sure you've had these experiences where you click on one link and then click on another, and pretty soon you're sort of lost in this depth. You just keep going deeper and deeper into the, to the web. Well, this is the way the law functions. These Ten Commands are summary statements. They're like hyperlinks. When you click on them, they take you deeper and deeper into God and His ways. So when you click on the hyperlink of the Second Commandment, The prohibition against making images of God, when you click on the first link, it's going to take us to the self-revelation of God. And the second link is going to regulate worship. So that's where we're going today. The second commandment tells us that God alone has the right to reveal himself to his creatures. And secondly... It outlaws self-determined worship. Keep that in mind. Self-revelation of God, self-determined worship. This is where we're going. So first, as creatures, the second commandment tells us that we are dependent on God revealing his ways to us. So if the pattern is we become what we worship, either for ruin or restoration, and that sets a trajectory, it's not enough to have the one true God as your God. You have to actually know him truly. A distortion of the one true God leads to distortions of our lives. To understand really what God is, is getting at here Um, In the second command, you kind of have to understand a little bit of the cultural context 
of ancient, the ancient Near East where Israel was living because it was not uncommon for them to make little images, graven images out of either gold or metal or wood um, of their gods. And so this is why God is saying, don't make any images or likenesses of me, of things that are in heaven or above or earth beneath or the waters under the earth, because they believed in the ancient Near East, they believed that if you could if you could craft an image of the God and put that God in your hand, then you had control over that God. You could make him do your bidding. Now, we might be a little more sophisticated than that, but we aren't much different. We want God to be what we want God to be. It's in our hearts. G.K. Chesterton said it this way long ago. He said, we made, God made us in his image. And the corruption of the human heart he's getting at has had this problem ever since. We want to return the favor. God made us in his image. Now we want to return the favor and make God manageable. We want to define him instead of being defined by him. This is the problem. The Israelites were not intending to reject the Lord, one author says, and go serve other gods. They were merely wanting to have the Lord among them in a very particular way. And in doing so, what they were wanting was a God who's small enough that they can manipulate. Any image of God, therefore, physical representation of God is an inherent lie, right? It's an inherent limitation of the incomprehensible God, the one True God cannot be contained or manipulated. And that should constantly be blowing our minds. I have this privilege every once in a while of visiting the fifth grade class up at the, in the elementary school. And they get to ask me any question they want. Um, it's rather intimidating, I'll be honest with you. Um, very few things intimidate me more than having to sit in front of these fifth graders and letting them ask me questions of the Bible. But I'll tell you this, your kids have deep theological questions. They're just, we're born theologians and are asking questions. And the, one of the questions that recently came up was, when did God begin? Who created him? Sharing this story with a couple of adults, they, they said, you know, I, I've always had this question too, and I've just been too afraid to ask. And we talked about the eternality of God, right? This is what Timothy, Paul says to Timothy. God is eternal, invisible, the God only wise. He has no beginning and no end. He is, as he reveals himself to Abraham, the everlasting God, the God who lives forever. There was never a time when he was not. There was never be a time when he is not. He is unbounded, no beginning and no end. And as we explain this, you could hear this audible whoa from the fifth graders. They couldn't contain themselves. You could tell that God had just blown their minds. They had literally reached the limits of what their minds could comprehend. God himself no longer fit into their categories because he is incomprehensible. And the problem of images is that they always make God too small. We can't cram his glory 
into the created thing. It obscures, it inherently limits the unlimited God. It obscures His glory. What is meant to reveal actually has the effect of hiding Him from us. The problem with images is that they always conceal more than they reveal. Now, this is true at a human level. Let's say, for instance, that I was to grab one of the mothers in the congregation and say, look, I've got a symbol for you. This is the way I I think about you. It's a steering wheel because all you're going to do day in and day out with most of your time is drive. You're going to drive your children to school. You're going to drive your children to sports. You're going to drive to the store. This is who you are. Now, you would find that offensive. You should. You'd almost immediately think, there's more to me than just that. It's true, I drive around a little bit, but I am more than just what can be represented with that steering wheel. How much more true is this in our worship of the God who is incomprehensible, which means you can't get your mind all the way around him. He is vast. He's infinite. To create a physical representation of him makes him too small. Takes the infinite God who has no boundaries, who lives in all places at all times and makes him manageable. It minimizes him. He is an all-powerful God and anything that can be made with human hands minimizes him. Consider the vastness of the created realm. If the sun were the size of a grain of sand, our sun lights our skies, makes the earth grow up, brings heat and life. If our sun, imagine scale-wise, were the size of a grain of sand, you would need approximately 75 buckets of sand to hold All of the stars in our galaxy. And the Bible tells us that God created that with the mere power of his fingertips. Now, there are over 100 to 200 billion galaxies in the universe. And he holds it in the small of his hand. Any image of God lies. Because it will conceal his incomprehensible glory. It limits his unbounded eternality. It conceals more than it would reveal. So let me ask you a question. If you were to draw a picture of God, what would you draw? Would he have a smile or a frown? Would he be tall or short, pounding a judge's gavel, maybe a shepherd's hook in his hands, would he be white or black or Asian or Hispanic? Any image of God limits his incomprehensible, unbounded, mind-blowing glory. So, we need a God who reveals himself. This makes his self-revelation Essential. Did you catch the rhythm of worship every week? We always start with this. God opens by his revelation. This is who I am. Now worship me. It's not a God who is hidden. This is the pattern of the God, the one true God. He does not leave us guessing. He reveals himself. He's left his 
fingerprints over all of creation so that it declares his power and goodness. He makes the rain fall because he's a kind and generous God. He's bringing all of creation to a day of judgment because he is a a God of righteousness. He does this in this passage. You shall make not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. I can't be contained. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He, he reveals don't, you don't have to create images to, to figure out who I am. It doesn't come from the bottom up. This comes from top down. God reveals, and he reveals three very important categories in this command. And these are the three categories that as we try to make God more manageable so that he can fit in our hand and we can have his way instead of him having his way with us, these are the three categories that we are most prone to skew. First, I, the Lord, am a jealous God. Jealousy is not very becoming in in most of our relationships. But look, we can tend to think God is far off and indifferent. We can tend to think that he doesn't care. We forget that he's intimately involved, and this language translates into a promise that the Lord is intimately involved with the pursuit of your hearts and will not let anything else take the position of prominence in your hearts. He is a God who is jealous for the affections of his people. Look, If a wife has an affair and her husband is indifferent, then it reveals that he doesn't really care about her. But if he is a jealous husband, he doubles his pursuit of her heart because he is deeply in love with her and will fight for her heart. He will not share her affections with any other. He will not share the central place of her heart with anyone else and will fight towards that end. He is a jealous God who is near. It's one, one of the things we just sung in our, uh, in our last song, right? He's a God and sovereign who will afflict his people towards the end of bringing about greater love for him in our lives because he's a jealous God, won't share his glory with another. The second tendency we have is to minimize God's righteousness and judgment. He is a God who visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. He is a God who is moving all of history to the day of a final judgment because he is a righteous God. To deny the righteous judgment of God is soul-crushingly cruel. We may think that we can just get away with the problem of our guilt and shame just by denying that God is righteous and will come in judgment. But to do so is soul-crushingly cruel. 
How cruel would it be to tell a child in Africa who's witnessed their parents being brutally beaten and murdered by an unjust regime to tell them, look, God doesn't care. That didn't bother his heart one bit. So crushingly cruel. If you've been, if you've been mishandled in your job and accused of something wrongly to say, God does not care. It does not provoke his righteousness. It's so crushingly hopeless. When you come face to face with real evil, you need to know that the one who controls all of history, who created it, is moving it to a place where we will all be held accountable. The sins of the second commandment also have long-term effects because they change the way entire generations worship to deny the judgment, the justice and righteousness of God has led to entire generations today completely abandoning the gospel to the third and fourth generation of those who love me. I will visit my iniquity. And if you leave this out, look, if you leave out the judgment of God, his righteous indignation at sin, then you leave out the cross. God is most fully revealed at the cross. Right? It's in the cross that he reveals himself both as a God who punishes sin with righteous anger as he pours out his wrath on his son to the point of death. Our sins are killed, debt paid, the righteous judgment of God satisfied at the cross, but is surprising about his son becoming his object of worship is because it reveals his mercy too. At the same time, for I'm not only the God who judge, jealous God, visits the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation, but greatest lines in the gospel, but God, but, so I'm going to leave you there, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you feel the discrepancy? To the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, I will pour out my righteousness and judgment. But for those who love me and keep my commands for a thousand generations, it's not even a comparison. What we have in the Bible is so utterly heavenly that God must have revealed this in a thousand years we would never have come up with a God who is just and merciful at the same time who reconciles that through his own work in crucifying his son the God who reveals himself at the cross by killing his son in the place of sinners so that we as sinners could be adopted into his family is a God it must be the one True God, put a thousand people at a thousand typewriters for a thousand years would never come up with something so, someone so magnificent. I have a friend who is a pastor, got deeply involved in homosexual lifestyle, abandoned his family, denied the gospel, and for his lack of repentance was excommunicated from the church. A few years later, he comes to repentance, relies on the grace of Jesus again. 
And seven years later, it's a seven-year process, he sends me an email telling me this. This one little line just captures this so well. This is, this is the God who has revealed himself in the scriptures. The one, here's what he says, in the midst of seeing both the judgment and the mercy of God in Christ. The one and only all-powerful God of the universe is utterly and irrevocably motivated by his goodness and love for us in every respect and circumstance in all of history and in this moment of our lives. That is only, that God can only be embraced if he tells you about himself, which he has done in the gospel. Here is the gospel. God, a jealous God who pursues has satisfied his own wrath at the cross so that only mercy remains for those who are in Christ. So, the last place we want to go is this. The one true God must be worshipped by this principle, reverent love. So the command, right, is subdivided, don't make images of God, And then don't use them for worship. You shall not make for yourself any carved images or any likeness of anything that is heaven above. Secondly, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. I am the Lord your God and the jealous God. God is regulating worship. It's not enough just to simply say, look, don't make images I'm going to reveal myself. You don't have to guess. I'm going to reveal myself. What I will reveal will blow all of your categories. Now, when it comes to worship, worship me in the ways that I dictate. That's the second. If you click on the second web link, that's where we're going. God is regulating worship. In the life of Israel, worship worked like this. There was no sacred, secular divide. There was no, this is Sunday and this is the rest of my life. The normal stuff of of everyday life actually radiated out from worship. The tabernacle, the worship center was literally in the center of the camp. And so as they lived daily life, taking care of their animals and, and raising their children and working their trade, they realized that, wor- that life as God had ordered it moved from the center of worship out there to the rest of life. It was like a, the hub of a wheel that radiates out. So if you get worship wrong, everything gets messed up in the process. And the God who is a jealous God, who's jealous for his glory, gets enraged in the process. Nothing is more regulated in the law of God than the act of his people gathering for worship. So, Let me give us four things that define God-honoring worship. So if you're taking notes, here we go. God-honoring worship, worship is not primarily about us. It seeks first to please God. We offer our sacrifice of praise to Him. We gather to sing His gospel Back to him. It has the effect of working on our own souls. We humble ourselves under his word. We should come as a result anxiously expecting God to meet with us and for him to reorient our lives and become our delight because it is not primarily about us. Nothing has divided the church 
in America more over the last hundred years than racism and worship preferences. Now those things are related. Those are just the two things that have divided the church the most in America. For our greatest problem is our selfish pride and what worship does if we move God to be the center. This is not about what we like, but what about God likes and what pleases Him. And the thing that should excite me the most about worship is God is here. And the thing that should frighten me the most about worship, God is here. It's dangerous, secondly, to worship God by our preferences. God is holy and must be worshipped as he dictates, not as we devise. Let me give us a few stories from the Bible that illustrates this. Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron's the great high priest and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, take their censers. They're like little bulls. And they add incense to them, which seems pretty safe, not that not that big of a deal. They're just trying to give God worship. But this is what their censor is called. It's unauthorized fire. This is not how God says to worship me. And so as they offer their unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command, not according to his word, this is what happens. Fire comes out of the presence of the Lord and consumes them and they die. And Moses says to Aaron, this, this is the thing. Moses had been in the glory cloud. He had seen the thunder and lightning. He had seen God face to face. He had eaten with him. And this is what he says to Aaron after his two sons had just been consumed by the fire of God. This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And Aaron remains silent. In 2 Chronicles 16, the king of Israel, Uzziah, enters the temple to worship God with what is called unauthorized incense. Again, he's devising his own way of worshiping God, not worshiping as God dictates, but as he devises. And he leaves stricken with leprosy. Because he had presumed in his pride that he knew how God wanted to be worshipped. God is holy and is to be worshipped only as he designs, not as we devise. 1 Samuel 13. Saul, king of Israel, is waiting for Samuel the priest to come and offer sacrifice to God before the people go into battle. He gets tired of waiting. The people are anxious and fearful. There seems to be an urgent need to offer worship and then fight. And so Saul, the king, takes on him the responsibility to offer sacrifice, not as God commands, but as he devises. And as a result, God in his judgment takes the kingship from Saul. Look, that can strike fear in us to a degree that we're paralyzed. But... A God that you can casually, trivially worship and manipulate is not worthy of the full devotion of your life. A God that can be easily and casually approached does not have the power or ability 
to restore your life back to a life of freedom and flourishing. He can't, he's not casual. You don't want a casual God. You don't want a God you can approach casually. That God's too small for this reason. Thirdly, worship must be done in the name of Jesus alone. We're in the middle here of, of God. He's taken his people and gathered them around Sinai. You'll remember a Chad preached this from Exodus 19 a few weeks ago. And, the, and he draws a line and he says, you can't approach me. Don't cross this line lest I break out and consume you. And God is on the mountain speaking in an audible voice to Israel. And as soon as he gets done speaking the Ten Commands, the people immediately respond, don't talk to us anymore. We can't handle this. Talk to Moses and let him talk to us. To come into the presence of the one true God is a fearful thing unless you are clothed in Christ. Because in Christ we're cleansed from our sins and presented to the Father holy, blameless, and free from Accusation In Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit and God has now taken up residence in us. He has found us fit, not because of any good that we have done, only because Jesus cleansed us and now we are his temple. This is the one of the reasons that we often begin with a confession of sin in worship. We're just confessing this. There's nothing good in us. You're our only way, Jesus. You're our only hope. You are the only way that we can confidently enter into the presence of a God who is holy. But if we come through your body, then we come to, I love this image, not to a temple, an earth, not to a a mountain that can be shaken, but to the true and living God in all of his glory. And we come before his throne, confidence. So if you come into worship, God is here in Christ, you're right with with him. So worship must be done in the name of Jesus. Lastly, worship must be according to God's revealed will. It must be biblically mandated. We don't get to dictate to God how he's to be worshipped. He gets to dictate to us how he is to be reverently worshipped. We'll call this the principle of love. We won't go into all of this, but, but put it this way. We, God must be worshipped as he says so in his word. Every relationship breaks down in this way. You don't let the other person reveal himself to you. The relationship will break down. If you dictate who they are and how they should be loved, then the relationship will always fall apart. So imagine you're on a first date with a person and they say to you, Look, I'm, I'm going to take you to my favorite restaurant and I'm going to order for you my favorite food. And then when they do that, they get, oh, isn't it so exciting? We're so much alike. You like the same things I like. Now let's talk about me. You should get up and leave immediately. That person only has self-interest in mind. They only want to use you to satisfy their own desires. Here's the principle of love. The object of your love always gets to dictate how they are to be loved. 
Guys, remember that. Valentine's Day is coming up this week. And get this. This is so important. If we become what we worship, either for ruin or restoration, the one true God who brings us into worship does so to deal with the most broken areas of our lives. And he knows what is best for us in our worship of him. So the question has to be changed from how do I want to worship God to how does God want me to worship him? The subject of the question changes so that worship becomes God-centered instead of man-centered. The Lord dictates how he is to be worshiped for worship is for his glory. And so because the scriptures have made known to us God and now speaks to us, worship becomes this dialogue where God speaks and we respond repentance and faith. And God speaks back to us again with his word. Worship that is scripture void is void of God's presence. Thus to experience him is to experience him through his word and in the context of worship. It should frighten us that God is here, but it should excite us that God is here. For where he is, he is working. And the most broken areas of our lives are being transformed. Because he's a jealous God who loves his people and shows mercy to a thousand. Let's pray. Father, you um, alone, Son, God the Son, you alone are worthy of our worship with God the Spirit. Forgive us for the ways that we have broken the second command by making you in our image, for thinking too little of you, and for not making worship a core priority of our lives. And this is our plea, O Lord. Your wrath has been poured out on Christ and as the image of the invisible God may our lives take up more our hearts and worship take up more of him thank you that you have revealed yourself we know you truly as you are and so we pray these things in the name of Jesus amen